Good morning. It's nice to be back again. <clears throat> so I'm a baseball fan. I've always been more or less a baseball fan. Now I'm not quite as interested. I don't follow it quite as much as I used to. But as a kid, I was always into baseball. In the summer, that's what summer was about, really, besides not being in school. And then the summer of 1998 was particularly interesting. By that time, I was in college, and there was something exciting going on in the sport. See, the home run record at that point was 61, held by Roger Maris for a number of years. And some people had come somewhat close to it, but no one had really come that close to breaking it. But in the previous few seasons, the home runs had started to kind of escalate a little bit. And so there became this excitement that it could finally be broken. And so in 1998, there was this chase between Mark McGuire, a first baseman for the St. Louis Cardinals, and Sammy Sosa, an outfielder for the Chicago Cubs. And every day you'd wake up to see what these guys did. And you'd find out, oh, McGuire hit two, but Sosa hit one. And it would just keep going back and forth. I think McGuire held the lead for most of the summer. Um, but as I went back to college, you know, the, it was heating up. And every day you were just kind of looking to see when they would finally break it. And alas, Mark McGuire broke the record. I think he went out at 67 that year. I think Sosa also broke the record of 61. And then a few years later, Barry Bonds broke it. But during that like, exciting chase, there was a troubling story because some people found this banned substance in Mark McGuire's locker called creatine. And this was something that people weren't supposed to take, but it was there. It's supposed to like, help you build strength. And so there became these whispers that maybe these baseball players were using illegal substances. And I remember being troubled by this story, but I didn't think too much about it. I don't know how I reconciled it or how I kind of put it aside, um, but I did. And as the years went on, it became more and more obvious. Sorry. Let me fall off my ear. It became more and more obvious that these guys probably had taken steroids. And at that time, baseball had no testing, so you couldn't prove it objectively, but there was testimony from different people, and it just became pretty clear that, that that's what happened, and that's what enabled these players to break that record. And it got so bad that the Congress decided they were going to have a congressional hearing about it. And this was years later, they brought McGuire and Sosa in to give testimony about it. And when Sosa gave his testimony, he was from, I think he was from Dominican Republic, and Spanish was his first language, but he had never really seemed to struggle with English before, but during that hearing, he had this translator, and he just, it just kind of seemed bizarre, because it seemed like he couldn't speak English at all or understand anything that was being said, so it seemed kind of convenient. And then when Mark McGuire got up here, I remember this phrase that he used, I'm not here to talk about the past which is really convenient when people ask you to come in and, take, and to speak about the past, right? And it's just very unsatisfying. These guys have probably broken the law, broken ethics of the game, and they wouldn't even admit it. And so maybe, you've seen, maybe you're not interested in sports at all. Maybe you've seen celebrities or government officials or, who, or even just people in your life like teachers or your boss, or just people that you respect, and you've seen them fall. You've seen them do bad things, and then you wait for the apology, and it doesn't come. And when they do apologize, a lot of times it's very unfulfilling. It's like, what do you want when someone falls from grace? What do you want to hear from them? I think at one level we want to hear them take responsibility for their actions. We want them to be able to admit what they've done and fess up and acknowledge the pain they've caused others. But oftentimes these apologies, these confessions that come out are very weak. And they don't really, they don't really do any, they don't really accomplish anything. 
And it seems like the people are rationalizing what they did. And it's very unsatisfying and also hurtful for if people have been directly hurt by their actions. Well, today we're going to look at the, we already heard it, read, um, but we're going to look at the confession of someone who did some really bad things. And that was David. So I'm going to kind of recap the story. I know we got some kids in here today, and this is one of those stories from the Bible that's not G or PG, it's probably not even PG-13. Um, but I'll try, try to keep the details vague enough so we can kind of talk about what happened. Um, but David committed sin. He broke several commandments. He committed adultery. And David was king over Israel. He was probably the best king Israel ever had in a lot of respects. You could make arguments that his son Solomon exceeded him in certain aspects. But David was a really strong leader. And the first half of his life was great. He made all the right decisions. You know, he fought Goliath. We know that story, right? As a, as a young shepherd boy, and he was called from the, she- from the sheep fields to be king. And he, went out, he was exiled from Israel because there was a king already on the throne who God had rejected, Saul. And he didn't like it that somebody else was anointed king to take his place. So David had to run for his life. But even when David was, quote-unquote, losing, he was really winning because he was making his decisions to honor God. He was living uprightly. He had chances to kill Saul. He did not because... He believed in that that was God's anointed, and it was for God to take him out of the picture, that David wasn't going to do that himself. And then David, once he actually became king after Saul died in battle, he led the Israelites to become, to, um, to get away from the Philistines, who had, at that point dominated the Israelites. And at last, Israel was kind of free from their dominion, all under David's leadership. So the first half of his life was filled with victories. Second half of his life didn't go so well, though. And this is the hinge point. So it's during the time of war, and his armies are going off to battle. And so David decides not to go. Now, we don't know why he didn't go. Maybe he had injury. Maybe he just didn't feel like going through the rigors of battle. He was getting older. Um, But he didn't go, and his army went off to fight. And while David was out looking from his, his palace, he saw a woman bathing which on her rooftop, which sounds weird to us, but it wasn't in that time. This is a pretty normal thing for them to do. This was where you probably would bathe. All right, so Bathsheba, the woman involved, wasn't really doing anything particularly strange. And so David saw her, and he wanted her. And so he inquired who she was, and then he sent some of his officials to bring her back, and then he committed adultery with her. So David had multiple wives at this point in time. That didn't stop him from doing this, though. And then she got pregnant. And so to cover it up, he brought her husband, who was a soldier fighting on the front lines, back to try to cover up over what he had done. Unfortunately, the husband involved, unfortunately for David, Uriah, the husband involved, who was a Hittite, so he's actually a foreigner, not even an Israelite by birth, but Uriah doesn't take the bait. He doesn't do what he's supposed to do, and so David can't cover up for his sin. And so he sends Uriah back to war and sends him with a message to the army commander, Joab, to put Uriah where the fighting is the fiercest. So David doesn't necessarily murder him, but he tries to make sure that he dies. He does. He dies in battle. Then David takes Bathsheba to be his, his wife, and she gives birth to a child that eventually dies. And that's what David did. So he broke... You could argue about how many commandments he really broke. Definitely adultery. Definitely coveting. Murder, I guess it depends on how you want to define murder. He didn't, he didn't like, you know, pull the bow 
or drop the rock on Uriah's head or do anything to kill him. But he put him in a place where he probably would die on purpose. So you could say he probably broke at least three commands. Did he give false testimony? Probably. So he's just racking them up. You want to talk about idolatry? I guess you could throw him that one. I don't even know where to stop with this. The moral of the story is he did a terrible, terrible, terrible thing. And at first he doesn't even seem to realize. And so we're told in this psalm that it's actually what he writes after the prophet Nathan comes to him. So there's this prophet named Nathan. And so Nathan comes to David with a parable. And he tells him about this rich man who had countless, you know, he had all these sheep, all these flocks of sheep. And there was a poor man who had one lamb that he loved. And the rich man stole the lamb from from the poor man and then ended up killing him. And David hears this story and he's enraged because he's a, he's a shepherd at heart. So this story speaks to him besides the, the justice of it. And sometimes I laugh at things in the Bible that I probably shouldn't laugh at. But to me, this kind of seems like when you're watching a movie and somebody dies, you're like, well, that's too bad that person died. But then the dog dies and you're like, nope, that's it. I'm out. Done not done watching this movie anymore. David is much more moved by this, by this lamb, I think, in some ways than he would be by by people. And when David hears that, he's all mad. He wants to find this rich guy, and he wants to do justice. And then Nathan turns it right on him in a really bold move to pull on a king. He said, you are the rich man. I imagine he pointed. We don't know that he pointed. But I imagine that he might have. If he didn't, it was implied. And so David is all of a sudden hit with the reality of his sin. And he realizes what he's done. Because up until that point, I imagine he was probably rationalizing it. Kings did this kind of stuff all the time, I would imagine. Government officials still do it, even though they're not kings. This is not a normal, this is really a sort of a normal thing for somebody in power to do, unfortunately. But David realizes that he's sinned, and this is his confession. And there's so much about this confession that's beautiful. Like, I think he does take responsibility for his actions. He does... He doesn't try to skirt around it. He doesn't try to say, well, you know, I was, I was at a point in my life where I was really wondering about what my purpose was. He doesn't try to do that kind of thing. And he starts by appealing to God's mercy and to his compassion. You can see that in the first few verses. And what that means is he's, he's telling God, essentially, You're not, I'm not entitled to forgiveness. You don't have to forgive me. But I'm asking because you're compassionate and merciful. And that's a good posture to start from. So he doesn't just assume that God should forgive him because, you know, he's David. Of course he should, be, he should forgive me. And so that's where it starts. And we have all these beautiful pictures here um, where, where David talks about his sins always before him, which is not necessarily a beautiful picture, but I think it's something that we can really relate to. Because if you think about some of the worst things that you've done before, they stay with you, don't they? So maybe those words that you said to someone in anger... Maybe you don't realize it at first, but then later when you realize what you really said and the intention in your heart when you said it, it hits you and you're like, oh my goodness, I said that. And it, it leaves a mark on you. It stays with you. And so I think we can really relate to what David is talking about. He's saying like the sin, this, it comes from deep within me. Because David has to wrestle with this idea that he just broke and like obvious manner, all these different commands that God had given. It wasn't just like these little commands off to the side that he had forgotten about. These are the big ones, right? And he had just done it. And I think that's hard for him to process. I'm sure David wondered, like, how did I get here? Like, 
how did I go from being a, you know, someone who's described as a man after God's own heart to this person who's committed adultery to who's committed murder, basically? How did that happen? And so I think he's really wrestling with that. And he, in verse 7, he talks about, cleanse me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I'll be whiter than snow. So he gives us these metaphors, this sort of imagery. And you know, like I said, when we sin, it, it leaves a mark on us. We feel contaminated. We feel dirty. It, we feel unclean. And so David's words here, I think, are ones that we can really relate to. And there's so many verses here, like when, when uh, Peter was reading this, that I heard people like, you know, doing that, you know, sort of like what we do in churches. Mm, yeah, you know, it's just sort of that under under the breath, um, you know, agreeing with the, the passage. And I heard that a lot around verse 10, create in me a pure heart, O God. It happened again. All right. Do not cast me from your presence. Like, this is what David's concerned about. Yes, he wants to be forgiven. Yes, he wants to have his sin taken away, but he's realizing the consequences of his sin are going to drive him away from God. And he had, was someone who communed with God. He wasn't just a warrior. He was a psalmist. So many of these psalms that we have in the book were written by David. So he's not just somebody who was a fighter. He was, he was a poet. He was a musician. And he was someone who communed with God, who had a sense of God's presence. He doesn't want to lose it. And he realizes that all that he's accomplished is because of God's Holy Spirit. How did he defeat the Goliath? How did he defeat the Philistines? How did he stay, you know, his hands clean during the, the reign of Saul? All because of the Spirit's work in his life. And then verse 15, another place where I heard people sort of agreeing, um, you do not desire, or verse 16, you do not delight in sacrifice or I bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a broken and contrite heart. And that the place of forgiveness of reconciliation starts when we are broken and acknowledging what we've done and kind of fessing up to our sins. And so there are so many points where I heard people agreeing with this. So I knew this is a psalm that really resonates with us as people. But there's one line in here that I kind of want to spend the rest of the sermon like preaching about, and it's one that just sticks with me that I have a hard time getting past. And you can find it, and let's see, where is it? Verse 4. Against you, you only have I sinned. Okay, I get why you feel like you've sinned against God. Not debatable. That's not controversial at all. But the words, you alone? Okay, David, you can't think of anybody else in this situation that maybe you wronged even just a little bit? Really? So it's tough for me to work past those lines because I, don't, I'm trying, I tried to understand that. And that, when I read this psalm, that's what I, I felt like I needed to focus on. And so that's what we're going to talk about today, try to explain what David means when he says that. All right, so let's try to break it down. So one, if you want to get a sense for how like, a, a verse is being translated... So I actually learned Greek and Hebrew in seminary, and I'll be honest, like the day after I finished my Hebrew final, it was gone. It just left. Like I, I remembered like two words. Like <laughs> it was all, all the verb conjugations I had spent so long remembering, I just, they, they disappeared. I don't know where they went. Um, so I don't rely a lot on my own translation skills, but the way I make peace with my forgetting of Greek and Hebrew is the fact that even if I remembered it all, I wouldn't be as good with the languages as the people who actually translate this. But if you want to get a feel for how these different ways that these verses can be translated, go to BibleGateway.com and put in a verse you want to look at and just look at the different translations, like NASB. They translate things a little bit differently than the NIV. Check the ESV. If you really want to have a little fun, check the Message Bible by Eugene Peterson. You get a little bit of slang in there. It's kind of fun. 
Um, but you get a feel for the different ways that this is translated. Almost every translation I looked at translated this the exact same way against you and you alone have I sinned. But when I looked, you know, like when I did a little bit of research to try to dig into what other people thought he was saying, the idea that he's doing a little bit of hyperbole came up. So this is hyperbole. He doesn't literally mean against only you have I sinned, but this is an acknowledgement that he has sinned against God. And as someone who's in leadership, he realizes that part of the onus on him is to represent God to the rest of his people. That's what he's got to do. And so that he uniquely feels the weight of his sin against God over and above everyone else that he's wrong. And I think that makes some sense. This could be exaggeration. There was one translation that translated it as, you above all have I sinned, which is different, right? So it's not saying you're the only one I wronged. It's just saying my wrong against you is greater since you're the lawgiver, since you're the one who's righteous, since you're the one who's holy. My sin against you is greater than it is against these other people who have also wronged. The fear I have when I read this, these verses, though, that sometimes I feel like seeps into the way we live as Christians, is that we know that we're saved by grace. That's a great thing, right? Like, we're not saved because we can do all this stuff to make restitution for our sin, because we never could. But that's been made for us by Christ. That's the gospel. And with everything else I say today, I don't want you to forget that, because you might at various points think that I'm not preaching the gospel, that I'm maybe getting a little bit away from it. But I want to put that there as a disclaimer. That's totally true. But there's a danger there. So I remember hearing this one guy who had walked away from the faith. And, you know, a lot of people who walk away from Christianity, they're told by Christians, you just wanted to sin, which I think is a bad response in general. We won't have to go on that today. But this man responded in an interesting way. He said, look, if I wanted to keep sinning, I should just stay a Christian. Because I can sin, I can confess, I can get forgiven, then I can sin again. And I know that's not the way this is supposed to work, right? But it does work that way for a lot of Christians. There's not growth, there's not sanctification, there's, not, there's no progress towards anything higher. There's just this cycle that keeps going back and forth. And again, that wasn't the point. And you see Paul at various points, like Romans 6, arguing against people who felt that way, that you could just kind of do whatever you wanted and then give that forgiveness. But, you know, we have verses like 1 John 1, 1, 10, where if you're faithful and if we sin and confess our sins, God's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. No sacrifice needed. We don't have to kill any animals. We don't have to do anything else. Um, we're just forgiven. Now, I know there's something in the heart that needs to go on, but it can kind of give this idea of what I think Diedrich Bonhoeffer would call cheap grace, that we can just be exonerated for anything we do, and it doesn't really matter. And I'm afraid that sometimes if we look at Psalm 51 and we look at it with the wrong heart or in the wrong way, that we might take, it, we might take that away from this. And honestly, I'm not sure that wasn't at work in David's heart still. So I'm not saying that the words in, in Scripture aren't you know, inspired or inerrant or authoritative, but it does get a little bit tricky when we get into the Psalms because these are worship songs. Um, like there's a verse in Psalm 137.9. Is written by someone after the Babylonian captivity. So the Babylonians, the big bad evil empire has come in. They've made Judah captive. And people are predictably pretty angry about this and heartbroken. And it ends with the psalmist in that particular passage saying, happy is the one who dashes your little ones against the rocks. Which is a pretty savage and brutal declaration, right? So we don't read that and think, well, I guess that's how God really feels, right? 
um, we kind of, we look at that and we probably say, well, this was written by someone under the circumstance who, who's honestly expressing his feelings before God. And this might, be the be- this might not be the best sentiment. It certainly doesn't square with Jesus' command to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. It certainly doesn't, certainly flies on the face of that. So my point is, like, there are various verses in the Psalms that we don't, you know, th- we don't think they're necessarily expressing theological truth. Whenever you read the Bible, you have to take into account, like, when we talk about reading the Bible literally, that means, like, reading the Bible as it's intended to be written or understood. And so if you're reading a letter from Paul, you're going to read that a little bit differently than you would a narrative or something that's a poem, because those are different forms of writing. And as someone who's an English major in college, I can tell you that you have to sort of bring different tools in your interpretive toolkit out, depending on what you're working with. So when I look at this verse, I do wonder if, if David is sort of ignoring, to some extent, his sin towards Uriah and Bathsheba. Now, I include Bathsheba in, in this, and hope you don't think this is a little tangent, but a lot of, when I hear this passage spoken about in churches, a lot of times, not this particular passage, but David's sin with Bathsheba, it's usually presented as, this is how you avoid temptation. This is what's not to do, basically. And I don't particularly read it that way. I don't think it does a great job at that, necessarily. I think it's capturing the failures of even the people who God chooses, and it shows God's enduring mercy and his grace, that even the one that he made this messianic promise to, that David would always have a representative on the throne, it shows human frailty and failure and elevates God's mercy, compassion, and grace. That's how I would read it more than like, oh, this is how you avoid temptation. And Bathsheba sometimes is treated like a temptress. And I understand why, but I think as I've grown and I've understood like power dynamics, you know, and especially in the climate that we live in now, we're realizing, you know, things aren't so simple. Like, what, did, what choice did Bathsheba really have in this instance? Did she have the capacity to say no to David? Would she, feared, would she have feared for her life? I think it's very possible that, yes, she would have. And so I don't really include, you know, you can, you can read it differently if you, if you want. I'm not saying that's the only way to read it, but that's the way I read it. And so I think that he strongly sinned against Bathsheba that he did not give her choice, that he coerced her, whether he did so directly and verbally or whether it was just implied. I think he did that. And I have no reason to think that Bathsheba did not love her husband. And he had basically had Uriah killed. And so imagine how Bathsheba feels about all of this. This is not a happy ending just because David marries her. It's not a happy ending at all for her. And so David maybe doesn't want to accept that. Because you have to admit, it's easier when you wrong someone to think about divine forgiveness, which sounds weird because it seems like God should be the hardest one to please or to reconcile with. But in reality, I think it's the opposite way around because we believe by faith that we're saved by Jesus' death and his resurrection, that Jesus paid the price for our sins so that we feel like we can be forgiven from him. It's those people that are hard, right? Because they don't always forgive. We hold grudges sometimes, right? Sometimes over things that aren't really that important. And so it's hard to be reconciled to people. So I wonder if there's part of David doesn't say this because he doesn't want to deal with that fallout. And, but that attitude that we can just, we can make peace with God and not make peace with other people really does 
fly in the face of the rest of Scripture. Think about how the rest of the Old Testament law worked. If you sinned against somebody, did you just offer sacrifice to God and that was it? No, they tried to make some way for you to um, offer restitution. And so that's where the eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth kind of idea comes from. Now, there's something kind of barbaric about that, and that doesn't necessarily because if someone pokes out your eye, you poke out their eye back, you still can't see. So in some ways, it doesn't really help. But behind it is this idea that you have to sort of try to make good on what you did, somehow. But that gets really hard in, in situations like what David's experiencing, because how do you make that situation right? How do you make restitution there? suppose he did what he could in the sense that he married Bathsheba, but you know, I'm sure from Bathsheba's perspective that wasn't very helpful, or only functionally so. There's no way to make that right for Uriah. He's dead. He's gone. There's no way to make that right. And he was a foreigner. He was a Hittite. So I don't know that his parents were there, but yeah, he sinned against Uriah's family too. How do you make it right for them? He basically conspired to have their son killed. How do you make that right? You can't. And so that, I think that becomes a problem here for David. So again, I don't, you know, there are a lot of things I don't know about this psalm. I don't know if this was intended as David, for, this is, if we're reading David's journal here, or if when he wrote this to an extent, he was realizing that he was doing something that would be used in public worship, that would be helpful for other people, which would make sense because you see in verse, seven, in verse 13, it talks about, I will teach transgressors your ways. Um, so that maybe from his position of sinning, that he has this humility now that he can talk to people and say, yeah, you really have to watch out and guard your heart against all these things because it can definitely take you away from God. So I think he has that kind of heart that he wants to help people avoid those things in the future. So I don't know if this was written that way or if this was more just like a private confession towards God. So there are some things that I don't know, and I don't know David's exact motivations. But I do wonder when he says, I have sinned against you and you alone, that there's a little bit of convenience there. Kind of like Mark McGuire not wanting to talk about the past, and that was exactly the issue. And so I think the same standard applies to us as Christians. That even though we're forgiven by grace, that our sins are, are taken away, are washed away, that there still needs to be something that happens with us as we try to walk in peace with other people. That if we wrong other people, it's not enough for us just to say, God, please forgive me. Great, I'm forgiven. And then just kind of walk on like nothing really changed. It did for the other person. The problem is it's really hard to make some of these situations right. Um, so I was listening to a podcast called the, the Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. It's a Christianity Today podcast. I don't know if anyone else has listened to that. It's a pretty interesting podcast pretty long actually a lot of episodes but if you got to drive like two and a half hours like i did five hours like i did yesterday long podcast great but it's a really interesting story because it tells the story of mars hill church in seattle which was a really influential church in the late 90s into like the early 2000s and the 2010s it started as a church plant in seattle not exactly a very christian city um, and yet it grew and it prospered and eventually became so large it had like 14,000 members Pretty big. Actually, maybe members is the wrong word, but at least 14,000 people who attended. And then overnight, it pretty much collapsed. Because while it was growing and flourishing in one level, it was dying in another. Uh, because the leader, the pastor, Mark Driscoll, who was a very, he, he was kind of known as Mark the Cussing Pastor. He was this pastor known for being very brash, 
very direct, but also very gospel-centered, like somebody who would really preach the gospel and held to the scriptures and had this high view of, of scripture and church. So he was embraced in a lot of circles, even though he had some rough edges. But apparently he wasn't really a great leader in many respects, that he was abusive, that he was domineering, that he was arrogant. And there was this fur brewing for years, and eventually kind of came out. And for a while it didn't impact the growth at all. The church just kept growing, kept growing, and growing more. But eventually everything came to a head. And all these different elders, all these different staff members who had been fired over the years, who had left, brought charges against Mark Driscoll saying that he had broken the qualifications of being an elder, that he had not been humble, that he had not been, um, there are a bunch of them, but he had, he had been abusive, domineering, and there were all kinds of charges against him. None of them were like, you know, oh, you had an affair with somebody, which honestly might have caused less damage, to be, to, be, to be frank. And so many people have been hurt by this action, by his actions. And when the, the charges were, were brought against him, they, they had him take, like, they basically suspended him with pay, I guess you could say. They took him out of the, they took him out of the pulpit, and they had him on the sidelines, and they wanted him to enter into a period of reconciliation. So I've heard a number of the elders on the podcast say, we didn't want to fire him. We wanted to see him reconciled and restored to people. Um, but right after the process started, he resigned. He walked away, and a few years later, he started another church in Arizona, which is still going to this day. I think it's in the Phoenix area. And as far as I know, he has never acknowledged the pain that he caused the members in his church. It has not happened. Because that was what they said on the podcast. And they were like, man, like, you know, we just... We would love to just hear him, like, say, like, I know I hurt you. They don't want to, well, probably some of them do, <laughs> because that's what human nature is like, right? But most people don't want revenge. They just want some sense of closure and reconciliation. But as you listen to the podcast, there's another character. He's not as, he's not as, um, as up and centered and influential as Mark Driscoll. His name's Sutton Turner. And he's kind of like the, the CFO, is that the right word? Some sort of executive pastor. And he sort of became... Mark Driscoll's hatchet man, his mob enforcer. And so a lot of people, as you're listening to this podcast, really hated this guy, Stephen Turner. And there's this one guy in particular who, they, they, you can't listen to what he says about Stephen Turner without a lot of bleeps, because he feels that strongly about him. And as Stephen Turner went through the same process as sort of Mark Driscoll did, he left before the church kind of fell apart. He resigned too. But he went through his own journey where he started to realize and reckon with all the damage that he had caused. And he started reaching out to people, probably realizing that he didn't have a lot to offer and he couldn't take away the pain they'd suffered. He couldn't change that in the least. But he just started reaching out to people to acknowledge his role in their pain. And, you know, the effect was, was really great. Now, there were some people who didn't want to forgive him. He said, yeah, there were some people who definitely did not want to hear it. And, you know, he didn't, I don't know how he handled the conversations with them, but he didn't, he didn't use strong language against them and say, you know, they were wrong, they were unchristian. No, he just kind of let it go. He said that one person reached out like a year later and said, I forgive you, after he had told them he was sorry. So it took some time. But on the podcast, you hear several people who interviewed, including that one guy who just hated Sutton Turner, and they'd been reconciled. Again, he didn't pay him money. He, he couldn't change the past but he just acknowledged their pain. I hurt you. I did things that were bad. And they were overwhelmed by the sense that he just treated them like they were human. 
And I've been missing for a while for them in this whole experience in Mars Hill. That they didn't feel like the leadership treated them as human. That they denied their humanity. And so simply acknowledging that pain, though it's not like a catch-all, you can't cure every wound with it, but it goes a long way. And so there are so many things as Christians that we can't take back, that you'll wish you could. And there are people who won't forgive us. There just will be. And that's hard to live with. It's a comfort to know that we're forgiven by Christ. I know it's hard to live with the idea that people don't forgive us. But we do have some power. To, we have something to offer these people who we've wronged. We can offer them that humanity. We can offer them that humility on our part. That we acknowledge our role in their suffering and their pain. We don't need to explain away our actions. We don't need to rationalize things. In fact, we shouldn't, because that kind of defeats the purpose. We should just go into these people's lives and just acknowledge, yeah, this is what I did. Now, I'm sorry you feel that way. That's a terrible thing to say. It doesn't really bring any kind of healing. But we have that power. And, you know, so much of the scriptures point in that direction. You know, Jesus said in, in, in Matthew 5, if you're going to offer your gift to God and you remember that somebody has something against you, leave your gift on the altar. Go seek them out. That's the priority for us as Christians. Again, that's not how our sins get forgiven. But I do have to wonder, like, how much are we really repenting of our sins if we're not seeking out the people we've wronged to at least apologize? It'd be so much easier if this was all property-related and financial. Like, if I ran into your car in the parking lot, you'd be like, why'd you run into my car for? I'd be like, sorry, I'll, I'll pay for it. And you'd probably be fine with that, right? You'd be probably good. Most situations with people don't work out that simply. And it takes a lot of courage to walk back into somebody's life that you run and to acknowledge that, to open yourself up, because, man, they might, they might just light into us. And we sort of have to take that, to an extent. I don't think we need to, like, continually put ourselves out there where we get abused by them, but, um, yeah, we might have to, we might really have to face up to the depth of what we've done to them, because we might not understand it at this point in time. So I really want to encourage you, as you go through your life, by all means, pray Psalm 51. But realize that your sin, though it is against God, and he offers forgiveness, is often against people too. And we can forget about that. And we can lean on our, our confession that we are forgiven as Christians, but we also need to offer that, that grace to people, that humanity, to speak into their lives, to acknowledge our wrong, and to give them the chance to find that healing.